Uh, This morning, we are continuing through our sermon series, which I've entitled Covered from Fig Leaves to Robes of Righteousness. And when we read the story of the Bible, the account of God's plan to redeem fallen humanity, articles of clothing kind of play this surprisingly prominent role throughout. Uh, The first symptom of the fall that is ever mentioned is nakedness. Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, and they suddenly discovered, hey, we need something to cover up with. (laughs) And in kind of a, a moment of panicked expediency, they threw together this kind of crude uh, garment made of uh, fig leaves, and it's the first of many attempts by human beings to provide a covering for their sin for themselves, and it was inadequate. It wasn't enough. And so God took the life of some creatures, and he made for them a garment of animal skins. And that is, the I think, one of the first foreshadowings, precursors of the gospel truth that we're living in is that the covering for our sin was provided by God, not made by men, and that the life of another was sacrificed to provide us with that needed covering. And of course, that was Jesus. And that's the hope we live in. The sum total of our hope as we draw before the throne of God Almighty now and at the end of time when we draw before the throne of judgment is that we are covered by the Lamb. Now, we have got, even our righteousness are like filthy rags. That's what the Bible says. We have nothing to cover ourselves up with, but God has provided a covering. And in between fig leaves and robes of righteousness, there are all these other wonderful stories that kind of center around articles of clothing. I'm thinking about Joseph and the coat of many colors. I'm thinking about the woman who came up and touched the hem of Jesus's garment. There's even other stories, like the time Ahab tried to disguise himself as just a foot soldier and ended up taking an arrow (laughs) and dying. Weird stuff like that. The Bible's full of lots of these passages, stories that center around articles of clothing, and we're going to be exploring some of them along the way. But this morning, I want to talk about a very different kind of garment. Arguably, it's the garment that is mentioned most in the Bible, specifically by name, and it's sackcloth. Sackcloth. It's very fitting that we focus on sackcloth following our story last week of the fall and fig leaves, because what happens on the heels of the fall is all of this nastiness, this brokenness, this sin-wrecked reality that we're living in, where there's death and disease, and people betray us, and we betray others, and we're just caught up in this toxic soup of sinful inclination, both within us and without us and the society we're living in. Guys, there is so much to grieve And the Bible, in those ancient cultures, one of the ways the Bible gave, God gave people to express their inner anguish and turmoil and grief and mourning was through the outward representation of clothing that matched their inner discomfort, sackcloth. I've been thinking a lot about uh, clothes this week because... Today, actually, after the service, my family, we're going to load up into the old family truckster, and we're going to drive and spend some time with my folks down in Vermont. Looking forward to it. 
But I spent some time last night packing, and when you're packing, you go to your closet and you're trying to imagine every scenario that might possibly come up while you're away so that you have clothes to match the scenario, right? Like, oh, we are going to go to church. Is my parents' church the really the traditional kind? How much do I have to dress up? Oh, I guess I'll bring this shirt and that shirt. And then, oh, where we'll be at the lake. Maybe there will be bonfires. It might be cold. I should bring a sweatshirt. And we'll have fun times too, you know, and maybe I should just wear something that's, you know, like a Hawaiian shirt or something. I don't know. <laughs> like you're, you're kind of trying to imagine everything that could possibly happen, and then you're trying to see if you have clothes to match that. Isn't that interesting that we wear different clothes to match the different mood of the scenario that we're in? You guys all look very nice, by the way. Let me just say that. You look lovely. <laughs> I was thinking about that, though, and sackcloth is one of those times where this is a deliberate attempt on the part of human beings to outwardly display how they feel inside. And to spend some time thinking about sackcloth, there's loads of stories in the Bible that feature the wearing of sackcloth, and we could, we could do a lot of them. But instead, I wanted to spend time in a psalm, Psalm 30. I'm going to read the whole psalm, even though sackcloth is really only mentioned towards the end of the psalm. Psalm 30, beginning at verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper." You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The first three verses of Psalm 30 give us some context and background information for the verses that come afterwards. Apparently, David, who is the author of this psalm, King David, he was very, very, very sick. He says that he cried to God for help and that God healed him. At one time or another, you've probably heard somebody described as um, being so bad off that they have one foot in the grave. Maybe if they're really bad off, you've heard them described as having one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel, something like that. However, in verse 3, David does not describe himself as teetering on the edge of the grave. 
He is so resigned to death, he believes it to be so inevitable that in his mind he is already laid out down at the bottom of the pit. In verse 1, he describes his enemies as already celebrating his death as a fete accompli. So in verse 1, when David says, you have drawn me up, he chooses a verb which was used to describe the act of drawing a bucket up out of a well. Not you pulled me back from the precipice, but I was down there and you pulled me up. This is the imagery he is trying to evoke. He is saying that it is as if God reached down and pulled him up out of the pit when, apart from God, there was no hope for him at all. One of the striking things about the poetry of Psalm 30, I don't know if any of you are poets or admirers of poetry, but one of the things that's really striking about this particular psalm is all of the contrasting language that David uses. He was going down, but God lifted him up. He speaks of disfavor and favor, anger and mercy, night and morning, weeping and rejoicing, mourning and dancing. His enemies were gloating, but God was helping. However, there are two uses of contrast in, in this psalm that I wanted us to focus on this morning together. And the first is in verse 5. I'll read it again. Saying of God, it says, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The second is in verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. So there's a lot more contrasting language there as well. Anger versus joy, favor versus weeping. There is this thing that happens for a moment and another that happens for a lifetime. To understand what David is saying here, we need to understand that he is not just making general observations about life. Take, for example, the second half of verse 5. If we just read this second half of verse 5 in isolation, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning, it might sound like just a general observation about life, like every rose has its thorn, just like every night has its dawn, and every cowboy sings a sad, sad song. <laughs> thank, thank you, Poison. I got to credit the band Poison for that sermon quote right there. Yep. Or it might, or that verse might mean something very much like every cloud has a silver lining, or you have to take the good with the bad, or something like that. We're all familiar with these sort of general observations about life. However, this is not what David is talking about. It is true, of course, that there are good and bad things in life. There's weeping and joy. There's nighttime and morning. And we do not always have to see a specific judgment or blessing of God in each one. But what David is talking about is God's favor versus his disfavor. He is speaking in a very pointed way in Psalm 30 about the character of God. The point that David is making is that God is displeased with sin and cannot be indifferent to it. He confronts sin forcefully, especially in his children whom he loves. However, for his children, 
If you are one of God's, a sheep of his fold, you've put your trust in Jesus for salvation, God's holy chastening rebuke is short-lived. It passes, and what remains and endures is his favor, which lasts forever. Incidentally, the opposite is true for those who are not God's children. The joy of this life is a fleeting, spectral reality that gives way in the end to wrath that endures eternally. It's an eternal punishment. It's irreversible. It will stand forever. So here we are. This is the main point of David's uh, psalm here. It passes, and what endures forever is his favor. Weeping is a guest that only stays the night. Joy comes in the morning to stay, permanent-like. One of the things that we reflect upon sometimes as Christians when we come to the Bible is that for those who have not put their trust in Jesus for salvation, this world is the highest summit of joy. It is the highest watershed moment of fulfillment and satisfaction. This sinful world full of disease and hurt and disappointment, this is the very best that it ever gets. But for those who have put their trust in Jesus for salvation, those who are looking forward to pleasures at the right hand of the Father forevermore, those who have heaven to look forward to, guys, this is as bad as it ever gets. And all of the good stuff is yet to come. This is something like what David is saying in Psalm 30. Weeping is a guest that overstays its welcome. It tarries in the night. When is this guy going to leave? <laughs> but then he does. And joy comes in the morning and stays permanently. That's what he's talking about. He is talking about the God who turns our mourning so natural to this world into dancing. He is the God who has us remove our sackcloth and who clothes us instead with gladness. This is an aspect of God's character that David has experienced firsthand, and that is why he is writing this psalm, I believe. We won't spend a lot of time with this story from David's life this morning, but in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21, we read about the events that may, and I think most probably do, serve as the inspiration for this psalm. They tell about a time when David decided to number the fighting men of Israel. He wanted some kind of accounting of how large a fighting force he, as king, could field if he needed to. And this angered God. It was dishonoring to God. David's one-time best friend, Jonathan, do you remember what he said uh, early on in 1 Samuel? He said, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. <laughs> Jonathan had his finger on the pulse of God's character better than David does in this moment. Jonathan knew that when God's on your side, it doesn't matter what resources you bring to the table. It doesn't matter what resources your enemies bring to bear against you. He is the God who is able to save with many or with few. It doesn't matter. 
And the taking of a census reveals that David's heart and confidence had come to rest in something other than God, and this was dishonoring to the Lord. Uh, Like so many things in the Bible, it's not necessarily that census taking is always wrong. I think we keep a lot of numerical records in the church. Um, It's that, like with so many things, it's the heart behind the action that is wrong. Uh, If you brought $10 this morning to put in the offering plate and you held it high and made sure everybody see it and (laughs) you wanted credit for bringing that gift, that would be deeply wrong, whereas the person who does it as an act of true worship, who wanted to advance the cause of the kingdom and help provide for the needy and the work of the church, all of that, that would be seen by God as a wonderful thing. It's the same act. It's the heart that makes it wicked. And what God is punishing here is not just an action, but it's a heart that had come to say, I need to count how many fighting men I got because I'm not sure if it'll work out good again. You know, he's lost his trust in God as that which he puts his confidence in. A prophet of the Lord named Gad came to David and gave him a, cup, a choice of judgments for his sin. What an awful thing to be presented with. It's like, do you want a switch or do you want a whip? What do you want me to beat you with? I don't want that kind of choice. The first thing that Gad says to David, he says, here's your first choice. He could experience three years of famine. Or second, three months of being swept away before his enemies or three days of plague in the land. And David chose this last judgment. He said, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. David's choice reflected the conviction that David expresses in Psalm 30 that God is merciful. And that although his wrath, his weeping may tarry for the night, joy will come in the morning. I choose option three, Gad. And the plague did fall on Israel, and 70,000 men died the first day. However, when the angel sent by God to afflict the nation stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem, God relented. And the place where the plague stopped was a very specific location that the Bible identifies as the threshing floor of Arana. I, I have to wonder, as I was reading that in my Bible this week, what does the stopping of a plague look like that they could say, here's where it is? That's an interesting question. I don't have a good answer for it. You're welcome. <laughs> you know, this is where the plague stopped. I wonder what that looked like. You know? It stopped at Winnie's on the road coming up from Prescott. What did, what did, how did that work? I don't know. But there it is. Okay, we'll move on. I don't have anything more about that. David bought the site, this threshing floor of Arana, and appointed it to be the future location of the temple. Now, the superscription of Psalm 30 tells us that this was a psalm that David wrote for the dedication of the temple, which interestingly would not be built until after David's death. So some have speculated that the illness that David alludes to in the opening lines of Psalm 30, the one that was so bad and so resigned to dying that he thought he was as good as dead, that this was in fact the plague that fell on the nation in which God relented of, that maybe David was suffering from the very plague that he had brought upon the people. But God relented. 
and in his mercy lifted him up out of the pit, as it were. And David may have written this psalm after purchasing the threshing floor of Arana for the someday dedication of the temple, to dedicate the site, perhaps. Because it is strange that the psalm would be written for the dedication of the temple, written by David, long before the temple would ever be built. The sin that led to David's sickness was that of saying, I shall never be moved. That's what David says in the psalm. He said, I should, in, in my prosperity, I said to myself, I'll never be moved. And forgetting that he was only secure when his confidence was in God. In other words, David has fallen into the trap of trusting in the numbers of his army rather than in the Lord. Self-confidence rather than God-confidence has always been a common failure among God's people, especially those who have been blessed with great gifts. They're just really good at something. They tend to forget very easily that Jesus' words, that he is the vine, we are the branches, and apart from him, we can do nothing. Or we're tempted to rely on material abundance, wealth, good health, manifest giftedness, a high level of education. We're always tempted to think in our prosperity that we shall not be moved. And those words of Jesus, that I am the vine, you're the branches, apart from me you can do nothing, for people who are full of themselves, those words sound more like a challenge, <laughs> like I'll see what I can do in my own power, rather than a sober warning. But he is still the God who saves by many or by few. And what David rightly points out is that God's shaking of a king who thought he was secure, his stirring of dismay within a man who had grown fat-hearted. This job he did of taking David and just reducing him to the point where he is crying out pitiably from the pit is merciful and kind. That's David's testimony about it. Because to do so caused him to return to that which would bring him an enduring joy. In verse 11, David writes, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Last October, we studied our way through the Beatitudes. And of course, the second Beatitude is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Their sackcloth will be removed, and they will be clothed in gladness. The person who truly mourns because of their sinful state will be truly blessed and truly happy in the end because conviction must of necessity precede conversion. Before there can ever be the comforting good news of the gospel, we must be helped to see the bad news of our own sinfulness and death. And the person who truly mourns because of his sinful state and condition is a person who is going to repent and is indeed probably beginning to repent already. And, re and repentance, what is that? Well, it's a turning away from sin, and it's a turning toward God and the promised comfort of grace. The Bible tells us plainly that we are all sinners, and that the wages of sin is death. And unless we are led by the Spirit to mourn with sackcloth, as it were, our status as an object of wrath we can never know the blessed, happy comfort of grace. 
No one can come to know Jesus as Savior who has not first trembled in fear at the thought of Jesus as their judge. And he can only be one or the other to us. He will either be our Savior or he will be our judge. The great news is, the good news is that you can choose. He does not have to be your judge. Jesus is very happy to serve as our Savior, but he is a respecter of decisions. And all of us here in this room and listening online or if you're listening in your car or something, you're a free moral agent. God has set before you life and death. It is yours to choose. Will Jesus be your Savior or will he be your judge? Now, we don't wear sackcloth in our culture anymore. Grateful for that. Uh, When we are mourning, we tend to wear black in our culture, uh, although even that has become less traditional. I think now there's really, uh, when I was living down south in, in North Florida, it was a much more traditional version of American culture, and it was very common down there in times of mourning for people to wear black. And having moved there from California, where you wear flip-flops when you're, somebody has died or when it's a happy day or whenever, it doesn't, you don't really change what you wear for anything out there. That was kind of interesting for me. Um, but if, if we do anything, I want you to know this, though. It's not necessarily the clothes we wear. Again, it's the inner world that God cares about most. Uh, Joel says in Joel, not Joel Whitaker, but Joel in the Bible, Joel 2, 12 through 13, although Joel Whitaker is also very wise. But Joel in the Bible says this, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So God is saying, you know, don't just play act, rend your hearts, not your garments. He's talking about how the wearing of sackcloth, that kind of thing in the inner place of our heart is what he's looking for. Now, sackcloth was made of goat hair, very rough and uncomfortable to wear directly against the skin. I suppose maybe the closest modern equivalent might be burlap. Uh, In the Bible, we find people wearing sackcloth when they're in mourning over some great loss or when they want to express deep personal anguish or quite commonly when they want to outwardly demonstrate their inner repentance from sin. It's not always just something that we wear when somebody has died. You might remember in the story of Jonah, when Jonah goes to Nineveh, he preaches his sermon of uh, repent and turn. The king and all, everybody in the whole city put on sackcloth and ashes. That was a, a, an outward demonstration of repentance. So it's also common to do in, under those circumstances as well. Sackcloth is representative of that broad impulse so often described in the Bible where human beings feel this compulsion to make our inner world visible in different ways. By the way, this is what worship is. Worship, um, and I may have made this point in previous sermons, forgive me if I'm being overly repetitious, but worship, uh, that um, suffix, that's the word I'm looking for, I'm not an English major, but suffix of ship. We find it all over the English language, like craftsmanship, friendship, leadership, worship. Uh, What this means is from an old English word. It's not a Bible word. It's not Hebrew or Greek, but it's old English, ship, meaning 
the, the form that something invisible takes. So you might be a craftsman, and you can't see that by looking at you. But you have certain gifts and talents that you've honed. You have been trained, and you have abilities. But when that takes the shape of a truly excellent pulpit, we call that craftsmanship. Or you might be a friend. And that thing that I enjoy with you that has been made real when we're together and I experience it, I call that friendship. You're the shape that a friend takes. Or all those invisible qualities of a leader, we say, well, that's leadership. Now, what is worship? Worship is a compound word in Old English coming from weirdship, meaning the shape that a thing's worth takes. So what is worship? Well, it is an outward demonstration of our inner treasuring. When I come to God and I sing a song of praise, if it emerges from a true inner place, in other words, if I am making manifest what is hidden and invisible in that moment of singing praise, it is worship. I'm making visible God's worth to me. When I cling to his promises in the midst of great disappointment, I am proclaiming his worth to me. Now, this is a human impulse that runs deep, and it's part of our design to be people who image forth God in the midst of creation. God made you in his image, which means in part that we exist to image him forth. And part of that imaging forth is making how excellent and good and satisfying God is visible in some ways. This, by the way, is why when we do things as a cover for the inner reality, it's so perverse to God in both directions. Jesus says, don't take your light and hide it under a basket. That's terrible. That's not what you were designed to do. Jesus also says, these people praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, that, that is a misrepresentation. That is mispackaging the inner reality. It's particularly repugnant to God. But it is altogether right and consistent and good to wear your heart on your sleeve. <laughs> and wearing of sackcloth is a true statement of an inner reality that is finding outward expression I'm, I'm sad, I'm mourning, I'm grief-stricken, I'm repentant, I'm mourning my sin, and I want to express that in some way. That is deeply ingrained in your DNA as a creature designed to image forth your God. Now, in this current sermon series, we are studying the story of God's plan to redeem a fallen humanity by looking at these different instances where people put stuff on. It's interesting stuff in light of the reality that we're living in, I think. Maybe you don't, but I do. But like a turtle without a shell, mankind needs a covering for our sin. We're exposed and naked. We have to be covered. But all of mankind's efforts to cover that have proved inadequate. We need God to provide a covering. And I don't think we can ever embrace the good news, the clothing of gladness, without first embracing the bad news of our separation and our sin and our status as a person who is dead. 
No sooner did Adam bite into the forbidden fruit than brokenness and a shattered peace was born into the world. And this reality permeates and stains the whole thing. The eating of the fruit in the garden was a violent act. It shattered the mirror of creation which had reflected the excellence and beauty and peace and perfection of God, and all of creation fell into all this, this heap of jagged, sharp little pieces. In one horrible moment of rebellious disobedience, peace and beauty gave way to conflict and very ugly sin. And as creatures who had been uniquely made in the very image of God, we became especially broken in the fall. Inside, we're a mess. Our inner world is marked by rough and jagged cracks, sinful passions, hidden anxieties, doubts, pride. Externally, our relationships are strained, marked by hurt, disappointment, distrust, self-serving acts, dishonesty, shame, superiority, embarrassment, exploitation, aggression, all kinds of strife. And in our most important relationship, the very relationship for which we were first made to know, to know and enjoy God, well, that was shattered also. God came walking in the garden saying, where are you and what have you done? Sackcloth and ashes, weeping, mourning, dismay, sin, these things are an appropriate response to the sad reality of this fallen world. Sin in the grave, dismay, sadness, weeping, these things are all as sure and unavoidable in the midst of these days as the coming day when Jesus has promised to sweep it all away. Now, we're look forward, looking forward to that day, but again, we are all still living in the midst of these days. Now, how many Americans have said in their prosperity, as David did, we shall never be moved? <laughs> what a shaking we as a people have been given the past couple years. How many of us ever thought we would see sports seasons canceled? and illegal to assemble in groups larger than a certain size? How many of us ever thought we would see $5 gas? Well, maybe we thought we'd see it someday, but not this time last year. How many of us thought we would see inflation on this scale? Death and division, riots in the streets. Just years after electing our first black president, our nation seems more obsessed with racial division than at any other point in our history. Where is the utopia that we thought we were progressing towards? We said in our prosperity, we shall never be moved. And what a shaking we're having in this country. As we continue our journey from fig leaves to robes of righteousness, I wanted to pause along the way this morning and reflect on this garment made of sackcloth it is a symbol of the sadness that comes from living in the midst of all this brokenness, death, and sin. But it is also a hopeful symbol of the God who has promised 
that we will loose our sackcloth and we will be clothed in gladness. And that though weeping tarries for the night, joy comes to stay in the morning forever. As we work our way through Psalm 30, we see that God brings David from self-confident prosperity down into the pit and then up to a place of joy-filled praise. And this is the path God always wants to bring his people along. David says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever, forever. I'll close with this quote from David Mathis. He writes, here are two things to see in these important climactic verses. First, sorrow and joy are not equals. In God and for his people, the sackcloth of sorrow and the garment of gladness are not equal and opposite sides of the coin. Sorrow and joy work together to accomplish God's purposes in our lives. Sackcloth always serves gladness. God takes our mourning and turns it into dancing. That's the final word. Not the other way around, not in the end. God removes the garment of our weeping, and in the end, he will clothe us with joy. It is joy that sounds the final note. Amen? Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. We are so, so grateful that in covering our sin, you gave us a future and a hope. Father, none of us can boast in ourselves. None of us can boast in our family trees or the family that we belong to. God, as we draw before you in this moment of prayer after reflecting on Psalm 30, there is only one thing we have to boast in, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. And Father, because of who you are, because of your favor, because of your grace. Father, we have joy that is coming, and we can even have it now in increasing measure as we we learn to walk with you and put our trust in you, as we believe in your promises, even in the midst of these days when sometimes it's hard to see. Father, we're looking forward to the promised day when we take off the sackcloth and we become clothed with gladness, when we set down the cross and we receive the crown. And Father, as we make our way through this life, God, I'm so grateful to have traveling companions like my brothers and sisters here at State Road. Thank you for the way that uh, when I'm feeling faint and I have friends who remind me of these things, help me to keep going. Father, you have given us so many merciful, gracious things in the midst of these days of sackcloth. And Father, we're so grateful to you for that. Even your judgments are tinged with mercy and grace. You are a good God, a generous God to us. Help us to learn to follow you with all of our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.